0: Our first first reading for today is, sorry, our only reading, is um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Uh, Just a i got two quick announcements before uh, the sermon today. Uh, One is uh, tomorrow night at 11.30. uh, We will be having our annual New Year's Eve service here, uh, 11.30 p.m. So I'd like to just invite all of you to uh, join us for that service, to end the year and also to begin the New Year uh, in worship together. And the second announcement I need to make is uh, beginning next Sunday, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Uh, We are asking the entire membership of the church to help set up and to clean up. And so we've divided the church uh, into six groups and you have been assigned, if you are a member of this church, to one of six months. And if you are assigned to that month, we're asking you to come to church at 10 o'clock to help set up and then to stick around to the end of the fellowship time to uh, help clean up. Now, of course, we know that some of you can't always make it early uh, because you want to sleep is not a good excuse. Uh, but And uh, we know that, of course, you have sometimes appointments uh, after service, and so you can't stay. But insofar as it's possible, uh, we're asking you to uh, come at 10 and to stick around just for, for, the, for the one month. And so we, we've divided the group. And I just want to give you the January crew. So you have a heads up, you get an email this week to uh, remind you. But uh, the January people are uh, people in my family, All five choys. Kristen Jeannie and Peter Chang, Grace and Steve Cho, Vicky and Yoon Chung, Judy Fong, Joshua Esther and Tony Hong, Andrew Allison, Susan and Joe Kang, David Myung and Jay Kim, Diane and Victor Lee, Izzy Kate Mihi and Bob Son, Christina and David Yoon, and Walter Wan. So if you're on that list, we're asking you to uh, be part of the uh, setup and cleanup crew for January. Now, I know some of those people, uh, like Walter, is not here, obviously. Uh, but again, we put everyone who's on our official membership roles um, to participate, uh, again, insofar as it is possible with you. All right, let's pray together. Uh, <clears throat> Lord, we thank you uh, for today and for this year. And as we uh, have our final service together this year, uh, we thank you for the journey we have taken with you, with one another. And we are thankful. And we look forward to all that you have in store for us uh, in the coming new year. Help us to trust you. Help us to be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday was the story of the Magi, and you heard about how the sign of the star led them to Jerusalem, then how the scholars of Scripture led them to Bethlehem, and finally, how the surprising surprise led them to worship Jesus. Today's reading begins with, Now when they had departed. Now when families and friends have gone home, Now when all the presents have been given, opened, played with, and discarded or returned. Now when all the holiday meals have been eaten and drunk and the leftovers placed safely in plastic containers in the fridge. Now when all the wrapping papers have been placed in the appropriate recycling bin. Now when the Christmas tree has been taken down and packed away in the basement until next year. Now when you've had a chance to take a nap and recover a little bit. Now when the Magi had departed and Christmas is over, now what? Some of you may moan a little bit at having to go back to school or back to work. But most of us have the luxury of going back to comfortable routines and situations. Most of us have jobs or school or homes, families that we can return to. Jesus and his family did not. The Magi safely returned home, but their series of inadvertent actions left a dangerous consequence for Jesus and his family and the families of Bethlehem. Because of the impending actions of Herod, Jesus and his family are warned and forced to flee from their home, their temporary home in Bethlehem, and escape into Egypt as political refugees. This week there was news about a second child who died while in ICE custody, and earlier in the month, the caravan of Central American migrants captured our attention. Questions about immigration, about borders, border security, remain hotly debated in this country and throughout the world. I know that we don't live along the southern border of this country, and much of this is abstract and theoretical for us. But regardless of our particular political positions, we ought at least to begin with compassion. Consider, if Jesus and his family showed up at your house, wouldn't you act with compassion and at least provide some sort of shelter for them. Wouldn't you? No, you probably wouldn't. You wouldn't. Martin Luther once preached, chiding his congregation, of course you'd think you'd let Jesus and his family in, of course you'd give them a bed and a meal, but you wouldn't. We'd welcome them now only because we know who they are and who Jesus becomes. But at this point in the story, they're just an unknown displaced family running away from the dangerous paranoia of a local tyrant. Today, Jesus and his parents would be just another forgotten family among the more than 71 million people that the United Nations has identified as people of concern. These include asylum seekers, internally displaced peoples, and those of other similar Categories, Their plight, their persecution from Herod ought to influence the shape of our views and actions toward all who are persecuted, seeking refuge, whether abroad or here. As Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. I know that the reading today is uh, difficult to hear, but... A part of the Christmas story must be that Jesus and his family face not only unforeseen joys and unwelcome disruptions, but also this terrifying threat to their very lives. Let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod is actually a family name, and he and his family um, have a tremendous influence over Jesus's life, and in the life of the early church. Uh, The Herod in the infancy narratives is Herod the Great. Uh, He dies shortly after these events, but at least five other members of his family uh, are found throughout the scriptures. Uh, At least three of his sons, um, Philip, uh, Antipas, and Archelaus, they uh, play a role in Jesus's life and ministry. And then his grandson, Agrippa, and then his Great-grandson, Agrippa II, uh, are people that Paul, the Apostle Paul has to deal with later. So they're, they're throughout the scriptures. But this particular Herod, uh, Herod the Great, um, was described by uh, Kenneth Bailey as racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, and politically Roman. Now, that could have been a really uh, wonderful combination to help him really better understand and unify the world. But in his case, it only accentuated his bad qualities. In history, he is known for his massive building projects, hence Herod the Great, including rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, today, if you walk among the ruins of Israel, you will see that any big uh, stone, any big thing that you see, you can guess it's probably uh, his doing. Um, he helped to uh, build these Big, big monuments uh, throughout his territories. Uh, But you also heard last week that when he heard about the birth of a rival king, all of Jerusalem became troubled. Everyone knew what he was capable of, of his instability. When he first came to power, he began by annihilating members of the Jewish Sanhedrin and later hundreds of his court officers. He murdered one of his wives, arranged a drowning Accident of a brother in law and hired assassins to strangle two of his sons for fear of losing his throne. Caesar Augustus once made a pun, only half jokingly, that it is better to be Herod's pig, hus, than to be Herod's son, huyas. So even though the murder of the children in Bethlehem in our reading today is not recorded elsewhere, it is entirely consistent with his character and other previous actions. He fails to kill Jesus, but he causes incredible suffering to an entire village. In a small town like Bethlehem, there would have been a handful of children under the age of two, and everybody would know those kids. That means parents as well as grandparents, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, relatives, friends, all lost someone that day. I'm sure that many fathers and mothers stood up to the Roman soldiers and their swords in an effort to protect their babies and perished alongside with them. So it wasn't just the babies. The entire village suffered great loss that day, including Mary and Joseph, who had extended family and friends in Bethlehem. Albert Camus once wrote that Jesus must have lived as a man of sorrows and incurable melancholy, because he must have remembered and heard the cries of mourning every night of his life as he pondered the evening from his childhood when he alone escaped from Bethlehem. There's truth to that. I know that some of you who have escaped the attack of 9-11 continue to remember that day, and it has forever altered the shape of your life. How could it not? I'm certain that in subsequent visits to Bethlehem and their families, Jesus and his family would mourn together as they remember that day. I think what Mary and Joseph learned and continue to learn and what we are reminded of today is that just because Jesus is with you doesn't mean that your life is going to be easier and that it will be protected from all evil and harm. Maybe Mary and Joseph thought, okay, Our son is going to be the savior of the world. That's pretty good, right? It's a little intimidating. It's got to be terrible for his siblings because no matter what you do, you know, you're not going to match that. It's a little scary raising the son of God. But it's also, you know, it's kind of cool, right? Maybe they thought at least their life would be at least a little better. After all, it began with the receiving of an unexpected gift of gold. Later, they discover their son can multiply food, walk on water, heal the sick. At the very least, maybe you're thinking you can reduce your grocery bills, cut out your medical insurance, and not worry about water transportation. But that's not it, is it? The fulfillment of Scripture and the birth of the Messiah cannot therefore be understood as easy street and the evil of present evil and evil rulers and the ways of the Herods in the world today. The birth of Jesus did not, does not, put an end to human suffering and an end to your own griefs. Not today. Violence and suffering, which perhaps was suspended for a day on Christmas, are always with us. The gospel does not deny that life can be cruel and unfair. Paranoid politicians and unstable tyrants will continue to wreak havoc in people's lives. We experience this to some degree, others to a far, far greater degree, but none are exempt from sorrow. None. Matthew quotes here from Jeremiah 31, and he recalls the memory of this inconsolable weeping when the Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem and marched entire families off into exile. Verse 15, that he quotes, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. They were the chosen people of God, and yet they were not exempt from this suffering and from exile. Now what's really interesting about this quote from Jeremiah is that it centers around Rachel rather than the usual patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as is usually done. I think a part of this choice has to be that Rachel, the younger sister of Leah and the favored wife of Jacob, or Israel, died giving birth to her second son on the way to Bethlehem. And so there is that connection to Bethlehem. But I think another reason is that I think this is a word that Matthew slips in as a comfort to Mary. Just as Matthew slipped in the names of four women in the uh, genealogy, I think as a way to comfort her, to let her know that you're not alone in this, you are not the only woman to face scandal, that these are some of your sisters who have suffered along with you in the past. I think, she, I think he's slipping another name here to further comfort Mary in her plight. But it is a question. Ancient rabbis wondered why the choice of Rachel in God's promise. And so the rabbis made up stories as a way to try to explain that choice. In one story, God is grieving over the loss of Jerusalem and the exile of his people. And so God calls Jeremiah and charges him to call Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses to join God in God's mourning. And so these five men weep with God. And one by one, they also urge God to restore God's people. Abraham asks this in honor of his obedience in sacrificing his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac offers his compliance in that sacrifice as reason that God should restore his people. Jacob reminds God of his long years of labor and the times that he risked his life. Then Moses tells Jeremiah to lead him back to Babylon where he expects to lead another exodus. But God says no. God says no to all these men. Finally, Rachel comes before God and God wonders why she's there and she tells him that he ought to restore them because of the sacrifice that she made. She tells God, O oh God, O oh blessed one, Did you ever wonder why my husband didn't recognize the one whom he slept with on his first wedding night? It was because I knew our father's plan, and I anticipated as well Jacob's anger and what he might do to my sister. So as my beloved laid with my sister, I hid beneath the bed, and every time Jacob spoke, I answered. And if I, who am but flesh and blood, was not jealous of my rival and did not shame her, but acted with love. Should you not, O eternal king, loving and merciful one, be jealous of idols and deliver your children from exile and let them be? And so God responds then to Rachel's pleading, so the rabbis teach, for she acted not out of obligation, but out of spontaneous and unselfish love. In another story, the same characters come before God only to blame God for the ruin of Jerusalem over which God is grieving. God could not stop the Babylonians, they wonder, just as God had stopped the others, like Abraham, from killing Isaac. And Moses asks why God didn't save them just as he had been there to rescue the people through the Red Sea. They all reproach God No one mourns with God until Rachel comes. And Rachel comes and weeps with God. And the rabbis taught that where the prophets and patriarchs bold theologizing failed, Rachel's tears granted what God sought, namely another to share in his way of grief. I know these are just stories, but they point, I think, to an important truth. Rachel, as a symbol, as the mother of Israel, weeps for her children, and God also weeps with her. God shares in the suffering of Rachel. That tells us something about God, that he is with us in all our sorrows. You know, when you are grieving, someone simply being with you, someone who shares in your sorrow and weeps with you, Is about the best and only thing that brings any comfort. But if God were only able to share in our sorrows and griefs, that would not be enough. We need more than one who can simply empathize and share in our sufferings and griefs. We need hope, we need deliverance, we need rescue. We need to know that the suffering will end and that the grief and that death are not the last words in our lives. And Matthew evokes this hope when he quotes from Jeremiah 31. It doesn't sound like it to us because it's not a well-known passage for us. But among the Jews, the 31st chapter of Jeremiah is read at every new year. It's one of those passages when you hear the first line you can start to recite the rest of it. Like when we begin to say, the Lord is my shepherd, our minds already begin to recite the next line. Our Father who art in heaven. And we begin, we know what comes next. Verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. It's a terrible moment. It's a terrible moment. It's about exile. It's about the loss of family and children. But it's a turning point. It's a turning point. Jeremiah doesn't give us the next verse. I mean, uh, Matthew doesn't give us the next verse. But in Jeremiah, there is lamentation and bitter weeping in verse 15. But in the very next verse, verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. You see what Matthew's doing there? Instead of quoting verse 16 and the hope, he tells the story of Jesus. That's the hope. He's going to come back. There is a future hope, they will return. In the middle of exile, God tells his people, you will return. In the middle of their weeping, God tells them, there is hope for your future and for your children. Joseph and Mary must have just clung on to these words. To know that as they were going into exile in Egypt, as they fled from Herod, that there is hope for your future and your children shall come back to their own country. They got, they, they had that word. And it was fulfilled. No matter how bleak things look for you right now, no matter what the tyrant Herod is trying to do against you, there is hope for your future. There is hope for your future. If you've had a hard year, 2018, if it was hard, there is yet hope for your future. The hardness, the sorrow is not the last word. It's not the last word for Rachel or for Mary or for the people of Bethlehem. And it's not the last word for you. Even in exile, there is hope for a future. <clears throat> Matthew is reminding us that this child, this Jesus, will return and in him there will be salvation There will be a future and hope. God's salvation may seem distant and inadequate now and to the mothers who mourn and when you are mourning, but the promise of God is deeper than that. When this child returns from Egypt as promised and goes to the cross, God will enter not only into the suffering of every doomed child and bereft parent. God is not only with us, but God will save us. God himself will experience the wailing of Rachel at the loss of his only son, but he will also provide a way to turn all those griefs somehow, someday, into joy. That's the future. That's the hope. Let me tell you one more story about Rachel, um, though it's not from the ancient rabbis. It's probably been a while since any of you read um, Herman Melvin's Moby Dick, or if you ever read it. Or maybe you read the Cliff Notes. Uh, I was trying to reread parts of it this week. And man, it is, I don't know how you get through that in high school. That is a hard, hard book to read. Um, But everyone knows the first line of the novel, right? It's one of the most famous first lines in all of literature, which is? Call me Ishmael, right? Everyone knows the first line. But how many of you know what the last line of the novel is? It's a great last line. You know, in the novel, you know, it's uh, the story of Ahab, uh, Captain Ahab, who who wants to uh, just catch and kill this uh, giant whale, white whale. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> and in the story, you know, he, he's hunting, and uh, he in his uh, hunts he um, runs across um, another whaling ship. Uh, that's W H A L whale, not a whaling crying Rachel whaling. Um, but there's another ship in the in the novel. Uh, call the Rachel. There's a ship called the Rachel, and so during uh, an encounter, uh, the Rachel uh, loses a part of her crew, including the captain's young son. And so the captain of the Rachel begs uh, Captain Ahab and his crew to help look for this this missing crew, and of course Ahab refuses because you know Moby Dick is nearby and, and he has to uh, to catch uh, the whale. And so, as the ship departs, Melville writes this, but by her still halting course and winding wolf away, you plainly saw that this ship that so wept with spray still remained without comfort. She was Rachel, weeping for her children because they were not. They were weeping because the the crew was missing. It's, Inconsolable weeping for the Rachel, and all seems lost. But then, in the epilogue, uh, spoiler alert here, the uh, Captain Hab ship, the, the Pequod, sinks. Uh, everyone dies, as you know. Um, but one person survives, right? Ishmael. He survives um, on, a, on a coffin, no less, uh, that, that, that's floating, and so he, as a survivor, then tells us this, this, this whole story. That's the, that's the setup. And the novel ends with these words. This is, a, this is Ishmael. For almost one whole night, for one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like main. The unharming sharks, they glided by as if with padlocks on their mouths the savage Seahawks sailed with sheathed beaks. On the second day, a sail drew near, nearer, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel, devious meaning uh, like deviating, not evil, (laughs) that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. That's the last line. The Rachel that in her retracing search for her missing children only found another orphan. The Rachel in her grieving found another orphan to rescue. I think, I think that's, a, that's a great ending. Um, it doesn't mean that her weeping is any less because she found and rescued someone else. And I don't really know Melville very well at all. But it seems to me that he he understood the message and the hope of Rachel's weeping. The last word is not weeping and destruction and death. The last word is rescue and being found. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The death of any child is painful beyond words. I know that. Some of you know that. And I don't want to suggest that this is some cheap kind of sympathy that all things are going to work out in the end. Mothers still wail. The dead are still dead. The Rachel of the Bible died in great sorrow. And her last words actually were of sorrow. She named her son as she died, Benoni, meaning son of my sorrow. That was the name she gave to her son as she died in childbirth. She did not die happily ever after. She did not die with the peace of faith or having lived a full and fulfilling life. She died with the tears of a frustrated life. I mean, it was a terrible life in many ways for her. She had to share her husband Uh, with her sister, who became a rival. And and her life was just just marked by this competition to, to, to see who could have more children. But she doesn't get the last word. She doesn't get to name her son, son of my sorrow. Jacob changed his name from Benoni to Benjamin. And that's the name that we remember him by. Son of my right hand. Not son of my sorrow, but son of my right hand. Son of my strength. Son by my side. Son beloved. That's the gospel too. If God is truly with us, then we can bear to listen to the cries of sorrow and to the pleas of justice in our time too. Knowing that all of our weeping will be gathered up by the one who not only understands, but who has experienced it all for himself and is with us, is with us and tells us that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, not even the bottomless pit of grief shall keep God away from being with us, from saving us. Your future is not endless sorrow, but everlasting love. That is our hope. You know, a few people uh, over the years have told me that it seems as though I'm trying to ruin Christmas (laughs) by telling stories that take away their childhood memories of Christmas. Parents complain because one year I told them to keep their trees up to celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. That Christmas starts on December 25th and goes all the way to January 6th. And that you ought to give your kids a present every day for those 12 days of Christmas. In previous years, I preached about there being no innkeeper. That Jesus was not born in a stable, but probably in a guest room of a relative's house. That Mary and Joseph did not travel alone, but in an entourage of an extended family. And that they were in Bethlehem long before she gave birth. And last week, I told you that the Magi weren't wise men, nor kings, nor three And that the star probably didn't move across the sky. And today I told you about refugees and sorrow and death. It's not my intent to ruin Christmas. (laughs) But I want to point out that the first Christmas was far messier, far more dangerous than away in a manger on a silent night might suggest. It's also far, far better than the cheap consumerism and the sentimentality that marks our Christmas celebrations today. Jesus isn't just some baby who inspires us to be nicer to each other for a day or two. He's the one true king. He's the one true king who has known every grief we will ever experience. And he suffers with us But he also offers us a word of hope because he has been through it all and he has conquered death itself. And just as he returned from Egypt, he will return again in glory and in power and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Christmas. And so as we move now away from Christmas, and begin our season of Advent waiting once again, as we will experience joys and hardships and sorrow in the coming year. We never lose hope. We do not lose hope because we know that God is with us and that whatever difficulties we may face, we know that that is not the last word. That is not the last word. But the last word is a hope And a future. King David wrote in Psalm 27. I would have despaired unless I'd believe. That I would see the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes. Wait for the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are thankful for the journey that we have shared together this year. We have suffered, some of us, great sorrow. Some of us have had a hard time Finding hope. Would you remind us today that we are not a people who are lost, who despair. Because we know that because you live, we also will live. Because you kept your promises in the past, every single one of them we know that your promises for us in the future will also stand. For where you are, you promised us, we will be also. So God, help us to trust your word, to trust your word, and to know that you are with us to deliver us, and that the world and its weeping The world, with its false kings, shall not have the last word in our lives. But your word, your word, your last word, Jesus, that that word will stand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. No.